day at President Lincoln's Cottage, we engage with visitors in conversation on difficult topics, from grief to slavery to American identity. Visitors, young and old alike, connect with us from next door and from around the globe. And occasionally, we get asked a question on a tour that stops us in our tracks, one we wish we could spend a half hour answering. Some of these questions on their face seem innocent or simple, but on a second look, they contain a level of complexity that leaves us wanting to know more. Each episode, we'll investigate a single real question a visitor asked us here. At President Lincoln's Cottage, we're storytellers, historians, and truth seekers. So we called on people whose expertise could speak to all the facets of these questions. I'm Callie Hawkins. And I'm Joan Cummins. This is Q and Abe. Come on down the rabbit hole with us. Let's take that half hour now. For this episode, we're working on the question, did Lincoln ever play basketball? I got this question from a young person, a fifth grader, who was listening to me describe our life-size statue of Lincoln on our grounds and had heard me say Lincoln was six foot four. She was suitably impressed, but very surprised when I then told her that basketball hadn't been invented yet when Lincoln was alive. So he never had a chance to play. Let's start there. How was basketball invented? We spoke with Dr. Curtis Harris, who you may remember from episode 2.2, where he spoke with us about his family's experience with the legacies of slavery. Curtis is an adjunct professor at American University and studied the social, labor, and political history of basketball. We asked him to tell us how the sport got started. I had heard that there was maybe a peach basket involved. Lincoln dies in 1865. Basketball's not created until 1891. It really is a... A, a, a creation, almost an invention. So it doesn't just kind of organically sprout uh, from previous sports, but it is kind of a deliberate effort to create uh, this this new sport. So the inventor, the creator of the game is James Naismith, uh, who was born uh, near Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, but then he goes to um, Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, th- I think it's 1890 is when he began schooling there at the YMCA training school. So the YMCA is a very important part uh, of this story. So the YMCA training school in Springfield was like the major training school for the institution in the United States. Uh, So what these guys would do is they would get this training and then they would go to other YMCAs across the United States and lead those individual YMCAs. Uh, But Naismith, he was charged in the fall semester of 1891 with trying to make an indoor sport for these, um, what who were called the incorrigibles, these students who were kind of unruly, just n- not not troublemakers necessarily, but they were definitely uh, not easy to get along with uh, when it came to uh, sports. They're, they're easy enough you know, to kind of corral during the summer months and spring because they could be outside and doing like the outdoor sports. But when it gets to be, start, starts to get colder, it's hard to get them under control because they, they want to do the rough play, but but they can't do that indoors. Uh, so Naismith tried to create, you know, various sports to try to get keep their entertainment, and he would try to modify outdoor sports for the indoors, and they hated that. If I remember right, he tried to do football indoors, and the guys were like, this just doesn't work. Uh, I think they tried to do a little bit of modified lacrosse indoors, and that didn't work. Sorry to sidetrack just for a second here, but Gulick, uh, I didn't give him enough credit earlier. The head of the school, Luther Gulick, also an important figure here, uh, he's the man that devised the triangle for the YMCA. So I know that's a very noticeable symbol for the YMCA. You know, you like the Y, and there's like that little triangle on the Y. He's the guy that came up with the triangle, uh, which stood for uh, mind, body, and spirit. He said all three of those things have to be 
equally developed to have a, like a, 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 a per, not a perfect person, but like a, a good person, uh, someone who's balanced in life. So getting back to James Naismith and his trying to, him trying to make the sport, uh, he was trying to make a sport that will, you know, be in line with the triangle concept where the students, minds, body, and spirit would all be kind of in perfect sync with each other. Uh, so finally, uh, toward the end of the end of the semester, Na- uh, Naismith was kind of just like at the end of his rope. I like, think like I've you know been trying for months and everything's failed. And he starts, he strikes upon this idea of, well, what if I take a little bit of soccer and if I have it where we progress, like, you know, think of us like a soccer field, like we have a sport where it's going to be teams and we try to progress the ball. He's like, think like, you know, what, what? gets people engaged and gets them having fun. So like that soccer and football concept of advancing the ball up the field, people love that. But then he said, well, the trouble is though, is that football has an egg-shaped ball. And so people are naturally want to hold it. And if someone's holding the ball, that's going to invite uh, violence and roughness because the only way to get the ball out of somebody's hands is to knock them over. Like you literally have to like hit them to try to dislodge the ball. So he said he definitely wanted to round the ball like they had in soccer. So the first basketball was actually a soccer ball. Then he also realized that having a goal was also really important. But he he was also like, well, but that's also a problem because that's going to invite force because to get the soccer ball into the soccer goal, you got to kick it. So he's like, "Uh, if we instead of having uh, a goal like that, let's have an elevated goal. So that's that's going to cause people to like try to aim the ball toward a goal instead of like forcing the ball into the goal. Uh, yeah, so it's inviting more uh, thought, more you know, skill, if you want to call it that. I guess it's a different kind of skill, uh, more finesse skill, and also teamwork. So he's like, okay, this is great. Except he didn't have any idea what he wanted that basket to look like. And so he just stumbled across a peach basket. And he's like, this is good enough. A soccer ball fits inside of it if you throw it in there. So he's like, all right. I, he grabs the peach basket, nails it up in the gym. And the railing in the gym that they were using just happened to be 10 feet. And that's the only reason why a basketball goal was 10 feet high is because just because the railing in that gymnasium happened to be 10 feet. Well, I'm just relieved to know that the peach basket myth is true. I, for a while, will admit that I thought that maybe I had only, you know, that's, that's something that you hear when you grow up in South Carolina near a lot of peach farms and peach trees and stuff like that. I'm glad to know that that is, in fact, the real, a part of the real origin story of basketball. Yeah, no. So yeah, just total accident, coincidence. Uh, the peach basket was there and it just happened to work out. Naismith wrote 10 simple rules for the game before they played the first game. And so uh, he got in there to gym, the incorrigible students, as they were called, you know, they're at the end of the semester. So you can imagine how they were. And Naismith comes in and one of the students, Naismith recalled, say like, oh, great, another new game. But the guys it turned out to really love the game. Very similar in some regards, but also much different than how we play basketball today. So they were shooting into a peach basket. It's a bas- like a, it's, it's an actual basket. So if you shot and you made it, somebody had to walk up and grab the ball out the basket. Uh, but the but the first game only had one goal. So it was one zero. So that was that was the only goal ever scored in that game. Uh, but yeah, but that's the origin story uh, in a nutshell for basketball. One of the other things I said to the student who asked me this question was, I know for sure Lincoln didn't play basketball, but he was a skilled wrestler, which is often also surprising to people. We went to talk to Leroy Smith, the executive director of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, to find out more. Are there other U.S. presidents that have wrestled? We had a couple of presidential historians do some research for us on wrestling presidents. That was the name of the book, and from pens to patriots. And we had discovered that there were 13 U.S. presidents in total 
that had wrestled at the time of this publication, only to find out after President Trump served his term, he had actually participated in a wrestling tournament at the military academy he attended in New York. So to be truthful about it, there are 14 presidents now that have have wrestled. Of course, we can't really compare sport in the in the 17th, 18th, necessarily 19th century to what, well, certainly the 19th we can, to the sports we know today. What would wrestling have been like when Lincoln was participating? Now, understand that we're talking about probably the world's oldest sport. So we go back millenniums. And wrestling obviously formed out of an, uh, a necessity to survive without tools, without weapons. You had hand-to-hand combat. So it was part of survival and conquering. And and as uh, the ancient Olympics, the Greeks formed the Olympic Games. And in those games, they had a style of Greco-Roman. And that's all upper body. You couldn't grab a hold of legs and lower part of the torso. You couldn't trip. It, It was all upper body. And that style and those rules that went with that style carry on even today in the Olympic Games. But a more common style was the total body where you could grab legs and you could and the upper body and as well. Lincoln would be exposed to what is called a catch-as-catch-can style. And that really, that style evolved into the late 1800s, evolved into into what we call a folk style of wrestling of our time. It didn't influence the Olympic styles that much, but it did the style that our schools adopted in the United States. Pretty open in that legs and trips and everything was in play. So that kind of sets the stage for his wrestling uh, term. Lee Roy also told us about one of Lincoln's most famous wrestling matches against a wrestler named Jack Armstrong. Lincoln was working at a store in Illinois when his employer set him up in a match against Armstrong, who was kind of a bully and talking a big game around town. While the match was apparently pretty intense, you'll be relieved to hear that Lincoln won. We knew that part of where this question came from for the visitor was from thinking about Lincoln's height. Would his height have made him any better at wrestling? The leverage is critical in any in executing any skills in hand-to-hand combat. So the more leverage you have, the more length you have, it can be favorable to you. Uh, you take the opposite of that, a small or a short-statured person would have to try and not allow you to even use your leverage if they wanted to win. But in Abe's case, I'm sure he would go and tie his opponent up so that he could use his leverage in such a way that would take you to the ground with whatever skill it was, uh, whether it was a throw with an upper body, uh, what we call underhooks and, and bear hugs and or, or grabbing legs and, and taking you to the mat with uh, some kind of a trip. I say mat. It was the ground in those days. He had the, that edge and uh, would use that frame and that length to execute winning takedowns, winning turns, 
tap outs, you know, getting them down where, you know, you quit. Yeah, I quit. <laughs> and what about basketball? Would Lincoln have been any good? Uh, I hard to tell. No one ever noted like the spring that Lincoln had, like how 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 bouncy is he? Yeah, like because uh, a lot of things about basketball is um is about your uh you know your, your reaction time to what's happening. So uh, obviously we know Lincoln was a good wrestler, so he has good strength. Strength is a good asset to have in basketball. It's not the only thing. Now what he had going for him is that he was tall, six four, also had long limbs. That's also really good in basketball. As uh, you two can attest, I also have uh, <laughs> long limbs. So, yeah, sorry for listeners, y'all can't see me, but I have really long arms. So when I play basketball, like that is what people always gripe about. Like that, not angrily, but there's like I didn't think he'd get the ball. Like he just reached over me and grabbed it because I just have like really long arms. Um, you can reach and grab rebounds or make steals that people don't anticipate or block shots that people don't anticipate that you might be able to. So Lincoln, those are his pluses. He does have good strength. Long limbs, decent height. Just the jury's out on the reaction time. So I say he has the raw material to be a good basketball player. Well, first of all, at six four, I think he probably would have had to be a, a pretty good shooter and a ball handler. But again, proportionally, back in those days, six four was kind of like me at six nine, six ten. You know, you're head and shoulders above the average person. Uh, so that probably would have given him an advantage had he played in those days. Uh, as I said today, he probably would have been a guard and would have to work on a number of other skills. But but I, I do believe, again, he seemed to be someone who, one, had personal pride, didn't want to be embarrassed. And that translates into working hard in, in practicing those particular skills and developing the fundamentals. But beyond that, uh, I'm not sure. You know, I know he was 6'4", but I'm not sure he could jump. That's the thing. Like I said, the only athletic evidence that we have is the fact that he was a wrestling champ. And that's a relatively stationary and, you know, it deals more with, uh, you know, how much you're grounded as opposed to, you know, how much you can elevate. <laughs> exactly. That second voice you heard there was Lynn Elmore, who played basketball professionally for 10 years with the ABA and the NBA. He then went on to a career as a lawyer and currently teaches at Columbia University. We knew the breadth of Lynn's experience would mean he had great insight to help answer this question. Lynn and Curtis agreed. The key question for whether Lincoln could play basketball today is whether or not he could jump, because he's actually not tall enough to compete in the modern NBA environment. But Curtis says, in earlier iterations of the game, you didn't need to be tall at all in order to be good at basketball. Yeah, so it, it definitely has not been true for the sports history, or the entirety of the sports history. So, you know, in 1891, when Naismith makes the game, like, he didn't make it with the with the thought process of, I want to make a game for tall people. But of course, you know, people just, you know, just naturally begin to notice, you know, like, certain things work better than others. And they begin to realize, like, hey, you know, Taller people are closer to the basket, <laughs> like just from a physical standpoint, like it's, it takes less distance for them to get the ball into the hoop. So, but st even then, like, you know, tall people in basketball really were only like, you know, six, three or six, four. Now that really doesn't change until the 1940s. So you're talking for the first 50 years, even 55 years of basketball history. So the person who really does, uh, kind of reimagine or um, helps other people reimagine what tall people can do for basketball 
is actually George Mikan. Uh, that that's the name that many people hear, and he kind of gets made fun of now because like, oh, he's the guy with the glasses, and like he he couldn't play basketball today. And it's like it's like it's like he he played in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, like, and he was six six feet ten inches tall, at least two hundred fifty pounds. So he's like a really big guy. And of course, the natural presumption at at that point in the nineteen forties was. A guy this tall really can't play. He'll be uncoordinated. He he's not. He won't be athletic. You know all these all these kinds of things. Uh, he went to DePaul University in Chicago, and he's from Chicago. And then of course he plays for the Minneapolis Lakers. And his teams. He played eight years of professional basketball, and his teams won the title seven of those eight years in the leagues that they played in. So people were like, "Huh, maybe tall guys can be great at basketball." So. Uh, <laughs> I would say teams kind of went overboard, you know, after George Mikan, because like, again, like they were like, oh, we got to like, you know, get on the latest fad, I suppose you can call it. Like Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain comes along in uh, 1959, 1960, and he's seven feet one. Uh, so it's like, he's like really large. And like Bill Russell came around that same time. He was 6'10 as well. Teams were like, you know, we got to get these really tall players. Like they're the key to success. But shorter people, shorter players have always had a benefit too in basketball. So now, people as short as Muggsy Bogues, uh, you know, he's five foot, he was five foot three uh, when he played in the NBA. That's extremely small for any any era. Like, you know, 1890s, early 1900s, teams didn't have a whole lot of guys who were five foot three. A lot of guys who were five six, five seven, five eight, five nine, that kind of stuff, but not like five foot three. That that's, that would have been extremely short for any era. Now, guys that size have the benefit of it's hard to take the ball away from them. Because <laughs> like if they're dribbling, like they're so short, it's hard to actually get down that low. Conversely, they can steal it from you very easily, no problem. So he's you know just easily able to get up under them and take the ball away. So definite advantage for him in that regard. Uh, but now he did have a disadvantage, obviously, because on defense that gets to the uh, that gets to the teamwork aspect though of basketball that Naismith always envisioned being so important. So like you can kind of balance out their different skills and kind of create offenses and defenses that play off their heights and their different uh, utilities around the court. Curtis was also clear with us that basketball, from the beginning, was a sport that welcomed many different kinds of people. It's a really uh, adaptive sport. So like I said, men first played it December 1891. Women played it December, or excuse me, January 1892. So like, it it had no distinction between sexes right from the get-go. Distinctions were imposed later on, uh, where women were forced to play basketball a certain way, but... Women were still allowed to play basketball. So it was actually one of the few sports um, during like, you know, the mid 1900s when women were really forced to not play a lot of sports. This is one of the ones that kind of survived uh, kind of the acts that was taken to women's sports. Also, it even though it was created by middle class uh, white Americans or white Canadians uh, and James Naismith, black Americans took up the sport very quickly. It actually was also very popular amongst Native Americans uh, in the early 1900s. So it was a very popular sport with them. Uh, so, you know, racially, it was never pigeonholed. It's like one one person sport, uh, even though at one point it was also called Jew ball because Jewish immigrants love to play it so much. But that's because, again, it's adaptive. Uh, Jewish immigrants mostly lived in urban areas and basketball was an indoor sport. But all you really needed for the game was, you know, the hoop and the ball, whereas football needed all this equipment. Lacrosse, you need all this equipment. Basketball, you just need the hoop and the ball. Uh, and then like uh, even... um. People with disabilities, like uh, people in wheelchairs have played basketball since at least the 1940s. So it's it's a sport that it has just been able to have lots of people been, been able to play it uh, for such a long period of time. 
Leroy told us similar things about wrestling, that it's a sport for folks of all sizes, colors, and genders. Women's wrestling continues to grow more and more popular. Leroy says when we get our first female president, she will have been a wrestler, yes. We also spoke with Tamika Dudley, who coaches the girls' basketball team at Sidwell Friends School here in Washington, D.C. I coach at Sidwell Friends in Washington, D.C., and, you know, currently we are the number one team in the country in basketball, girls' basketball, so super excited about that. Um, We have a, a great team of young ladies that not only are high academic students, but also very high and skilled athletically. There's other teams in the country that are just as talented as us, but, you know, one of the things I think makes this group super special is that they all are really willing to kind of sacrifice their own personal goals for a common team goal. I've definitely seen photos of Lincoln where he looks awkward sitting in furniture, like he doesn't have enough space for his legs. We wanted to know from folks who've lived it, besides basketball cred, how might Lincoln's height have impacted other parts of his life? That's what, I mean, I, I think that it's funny because I have a daughter that plays on the team and she's 6'2". And I can remember very, and she's always played basketball, but I remember very early that she hated being tall. Like that was a big part of it. Like she could not, she was like, I hope I'm done growing. She was very tall, very early. But I also think there's a, people kind of um, stereotype you because you're tall at times. I mean, just like to ask the question, was Lincoln a basketball player because he was tall? Yes, I think that automatically comes with the territory of having that that height. But I think for, for female athletes, sometimes you can be super uncomfortable when you're really tall because, I mean, I guess it's not not normal and kids want to fit in and they don't want to stand out. And um, I think those things are things that have resonated with a lot of our players. Anything that makes you stand out from others comes with a whole suite of ups and downs. Lynn shared some of his experiences with moving through the world as a tall person. In positive and, and sometimes negative ways. Uh, from a negative standpoint, uh, people always seem to be in the circles that, that I've traveled in. There always there's always someone who is quote intimidated simply by size, and, and you know that's obviously not my intent to intimidate anyone. And you know it requires me to to be more open and you know try to engender that kind of trust and 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 to get a feeling from people that you know I'm not. Uh, a six nine monster. I'm just a, a normal person. I, I think uh, from a positive standpoint, uh, certainly taller people in business particularly seem to, you know, have some kind of edge, whether it's from a, a perception of leadership or something along those lines. And particularly when you combine education with size in, in that regard and, and, and with, you know, the, the ability to interact with people, it, it's certainly been a positive never lacked for attention, that's for sure. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't as though I, I could, you know, be uh, part of the wallpaper. Uh, so it's kind of really, you know, forced me to be a little more outgoing. I mean, as a, as a child, I wasn't. I was relatively shy and, you know, certainly I wasn't necessarily proud of my height, but as time went on, it started to show me that it was an advantage in, in many ways. I, I certainly sympathize, empathize, <laughs> all of those things, uh, simply because the world wasn't made for people taller than the average person. Um, you know, I, I get that today. Uh, even though you have king-sized beds, my feet will still hang over. Uh, there's so many things. Doorways are barely, right now they're seven feet tall. I can imagine what they were like 100, you know, 150 years ago. 
walking through those doorways. And of course, Lincoln had the nerve to wear a stovepipe hat, which probably made him seven feet tall. <laughs> so, you know, it, it had to be a double whammy there. Like Curtis told us earlier, basketball was a deliberate creation. It was intentionally designed to cultivate not only the body, but also the mind and the spirit. So I found Naismith, uh, what he wrote about the three principles or three values of basketball that I thought really stood out that he wrote about. And he, the three things that really stood out for me was that he wrote uh, about self-sacrifice, self-control, and sportsmanship. And he wrote that sportsmanship was the player's insistence on his own rights and his observance of the rights of others. Yeah, so he said sportsmanship is not just about like making sure that you're able to play the game right, but make sure that everybody's able to play the game. Uh, then the self-sacrifice, Naismith defined as the willingness to place the good of the team above one's personal ambitions. And then self-control was the subordination of one's feelings for a purpose. So, uh, yeah, I think definitely Lincoln would have, um, definitely would have agreed with those ideas, those, those ideas right there. So we wanted to think more in depth about what's the interplay between the physical and mental for athletes. Maybe we need to think about sport as a whole self experience. Tamika was very clear with us that her team is really living that second principle of Naismith's, the self-sacrifice. She also reminded us that all of her athletes are also students at the same time. I feel like it definitely shows up on the court because there's a certain level of like perseverance and uh, being resilient to be able to be uh, an athlete and still juggle the demands of the classroom. And so because you have to demonstrate that on a daily basis, whether it's managing your day-to-day schedule and meeting with teachers and getting extra help uh, and those things, but then also having to come to a practice at night and given you know, your A-plus effort at practice as well, I think it definitely like fosters a sense of like commitment, perseverance, you know, hard work, dedication, like all of those things that you know, we want our, our student athletes to kind of embody. Um, but I think the classroom definitely helps. I mean, it just kind of all translates to the court. I um, mean, then even goes deeper than that now because, you know, there may be things that you want to accomplish on the court because it's something that's recognized or notable in like the basketball world. Maybe you get an accolade because you score a certain amount of points. Um, but to even be willing to sacrifice those like those accolades, individual accolades for the team, they, those things kind of go through your mind as you're playing the game. And it's whether to make the extra pass or do I shoot it because I might get noticed more because I score another point. You know what I mean? There's a lot to manage. And I think it's interesting the lay, the, the extra layer of intensity that the social media world brings to the table because especially for teenage girls or young kids, they're like managing their emotions and that whole world so differently. Like we didn't have that when we were younger and playing. Lynn talked about how physicality could also be a form of intelligence in and of itself. To be an athlete, to be a good athlete, you know, requires a, an innate intelligence that, you know, we probably can't necessarily look at, put our finger on and measure, but certainly it's there to understand uh, where you are, what you're supposed to do, to understand, particularly in team sports, how everything fits. Uh, you know, that requires a bit of thought that, um, I wouldn't call it deep thought, but but certainly it, it requires thought. It requires the ability to anticipate, the ability to formulate. And, and I think that in those areas, you know, whether you're a deep thinker or not, it, it certainly requires 
uh, that level of intelligence to be able to put it all together and make something of it. Obviously, people learn and, and people express their intelligence in different ways. And to take what you what you absorb cerebrally and to put it into action physically is a, another aspect of, of that intelligence. And you know, those who can do it extraordinarily well wind up in the Hall of Fame. They wind up becoming presidents. And Leroy agreed that it's a combination of physical skill and mental acuity that leads to success. You need that drive to perform well, to compete well, to execute well. So the the mental is extremely important. And part of the reasons why so many, I think, presidents have wrestled is that it's been often described that a wrestling match is like a chess game, but it's going at about 100 miles an hour. And so you're, you're on automatic pilot when you touch each other and you start competing, you know, it's, uh, everything's going quick. So it's automatic responses that have had to been trained to execute, but you also have to be ready for the unexpected and be able to respond. So you, your, your head's got to be, your mental has got to be functioning well and on automatic pilot, really. How might these less tangible aspects have played out for Lincoln? We wanted to know from Lynn, since he has experience with both, do you need the same kinds of skills to succeed on the basketball court as you do in a court of law? No, I I think that there are many skills that that are pretty much the same, um, at least uh, on on the surface. I I think that to be a a great athlete, you have to be steeped in, in, in very sharp fundamentally. Fundamentals of basketball, the abilities that are necessary for your position. Now, when I was a center, I didn't necessarily have to dribble the ball much, but, you know, rebounding, playing defense, certain offensive skills, over and over, you have to, you have to polish those. And, and I think throughout law school and, you know, in my practice, I began as an assistant district attorney in, in New York City, in Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, I, I did some defense work and I was an agent trying to represent and speak up for athletes as well as in other areas of public interest, you know, being steeped in the fundamentals of the law, steeped in the fundamentals of that particular business were extremely important because you can only build and improve off of a base of fundamentals. And I think that that's important. And, you know, when you look at, uh, say, a person like Abraham Lincoln, who was self-taught as a lawyer, but Nevertheless, his understanding of the Constitution, his understanding of the law from everything that I read was so fundamentally sound that it allowed him to build off of that. And again, it also allowed what I call that that moral evolution, that he kept his mind open and was able to make changes through his reasoning power. And I think all those things were important. For me, you know, as a trial lawyer particularly, it was all about understanding the rules within court court decorum and also being able to to utilize those rules and recognize various ways that um, you could use them to your benefit. Yeah, they're both very intense uh, environments with a lot of rules attached to them and how you operate within the rules that are around you helps determine your success. Yeah, you find ways to to utilize them to your benefit. One of the key things we talk about with Lincoln is his ability to work under pressure. His presidency was full of intense challenges, both personal and national. It was interesting to think about his athletic background as a part of this, especially as Leroy told us about how wrestling builds resilience. 
the self-confidence just grows enormously when you feel like you can defend yourself. You learn these skills and acquire these skills so that you can defend yourself. You just watch their self-esteem grow with that learning experience. And as a result, you're helping people become more self-reliant to a certain degree. It's not an easy sport. We always say, why is it not easy? Well, when you get thrown down, you got to get back up and you got to keep getting back up. Well, none of us like to get thrown down. And some of us, after we don't, we keep getting thrown down, we, we, we may quit and give it up. But those who stay with it and stick it out, they have learned that that getting back up is the key to life. And uh, we like to share that message with people who really don't know why wrestling is important and what it's all about as a sport today. At Columbia, Lynn teaches a course on athletes and social justice. Is there something particular about athletes that make them effective activists? Better at getting back up? Well, it really depends on who the athlete is and what the athlete has experienced, I believe. And then recognition of their platform, the the courage to stand out, courage to stand up. You know, those are very important virtues that are required. Not all athletes can be advocates for social justice. As I said, I I think a lot of it has to do with experience, their experiences as well as those around them. And when you take a look at those who have been, I guess, placed on a platform that reaches others, we can go back into history uh, at the beginning of when sport was a thing in America and look at those who suffered through, you know, laws, uh, whether it's Jim Crow laws, laws of segregation, those who suffered uh, the slings and arrows of of racism uh, unto itself, whether it be Paul Robeson, who obviously was Phi Beta Kappa at Rutgers and, you know, valedictorian of his class. But you're even talking about people like Jesse Owens or Joe Lewis in their inimitable ways, Jackie Robinson, uh, Muhammad Ali, who did not have a college education, but nevertheless stood intelligently for, for something. And then, you know, we have Tommy Smith, John Carlos, go on and on, Colin Kaepernick. You know, we can talk about women who have experienced the dual edge of the sword of discrimination, both as women and, you know, as women of color. You know, those who in the Olympics, Wilma Rudolph, among others, Althea Gibson. You know, you look at all of them and you go to today, Colin Kaepernick, Megan Rapino, people like that, and you recognize that they've experienced something. They felt something and they've been able to Put that together and recognize that I have a platform and the courage that it takes not only to, you know, become a great athlete and the step beyond, you know, the constraints many times that keep those who have talent from uh, maximizing that talent and, and really allows those who have that talent to step forward, to utilize that courage in a way to essentially stand for social justice, you know, obviously sets them apart. So, you know, there, there are many people who have some of those skills who certainly have the opportunity, but not everybody seizes the moment. Part of what Lynn's talking about here is a combination of the circumstances of a person's life and their willingness to take action, to sort of step forward and use the situation that they have to try and make a difference. This made me think a lot about Lincoln and immigration. Lincoln saw the country as a beacon of hope for all seeking freedom and opportunity. 
And he believed the steady arrival of people drawn to the country's founding ideals and opportunities were crucial to the success of the American experience. So although he had relatively little personal experience with immigrants in his formative years, he expressed full support of immigration throughout his political career and advocated for their aid through legislation and personal pleas to Congress. When I asked Tamika about how people can best support the young people in their lives, including athletes, she said, I think one thing is, just, you know, staying focused on like the positive things when it comes to the game of basketball or when you're watching your child or your peers or, you know, family members playing sports. Because many times if you are constantly scrutinizing the game or you're whatever your child or it, it takes the fun out of watching and you can't really enjoy what is actually happening on the floor and you know it's just kind of like sometimes when you're watching you know sometimes it's good to be kind of mindless and just watch the game and enjoy it um and so I think that's something that I would love to share like share with others like don't scrutinize so much just enjoy what's happening on the floor just be in the moment of the experience exactly yes The cottage provided space for Lincoln to do just that, to be where he was. And in that way, it supported him in his work towards justice, even if it never served as an arena for him to show off his basketball skills. We want to encourage you to think about what are your values and how can you instill them in all the different things you're doing? How can you be deliberate in the way that James Naismith was in building the world around you? This episode was produced by me, Joan Cummins, with Callie Hawkins and support from the President Lincoln's Cottage team. Music for Q&A was written, performed, and is copyrighted by Clancy Newman. Q&A is possible thanks to generous supporters of President Lincoln's Cottage. To find out how you can support this podcast and other programming, visit www.lincolncottage.org. And if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. To the young person who asked this question, Thanks for taking us to whole new arenas. We also owe particular thanks for this episode to Johnny Delascio, Rebecca Kilborn, and Brody Remington. Comments, questions? Write to us at podcast at lincolncottage.org. President Lincoln's Cottage is a home for brave ideas. Stay curious. <laughs>